Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of History Spelunkers, the show where I take a dive into niche topics from history with my friends. I'm your host, Kelvin, he, him pronouns, and here is my guest today. Hi, Ryan, he, him pronouns. How we doing, everybody? It's uh, been a bit since we've gotten an episode out there. It has been a while, and as you can tell, it's just the two of us today, so... Yeah, the end of a year is always a bit hectic, but we're here giving you the content you so deserve, so let's dive into it. different episode because not only are we going to discuss something from history we will also project into the future a little bit today ah future Um, spelunkers yes future spelunking we're going to revisit the topic of nuclear history Uh more specifically the question of what to do with nuclear waste now nuclear waste can mean a variety of things from Mm irradiated medical equipment all the way to the rubble of a nuclear bomb but the main thing we're going to be working with is the waste that is generated from nuclear power and from the dismantling of nuclear weapons Ah, got it and so the big thing to consider with this type of waste is we're going to get into some science here is the half-life of nuclear elements basically the amount of time it takes for the nuclear waste to break down into elements that are stable and no longer dangerous to humans. And so a lethal dose of radiation is around 400 to 450 rem. Rem is the measurement of the absorption of rads. (laughs) And rads are a unit of energy. I mean, this probably means nothing. So to give you a an idea of the kind of scale that that number is, a chest x-ray is 0.01 rem. And annually, you will receive around 0.03 rem from the food that you eat. A full body CT scan is one rem. Okay. And so a lethal dose is defined as 50% of the people exposed will die in 30 days. So pretty quick. Yeah. And all all things considered. You don't really start to get sick until you pass 100 rem in a short period of time. But once you start getting past 200 rem, you're needing to go to the hospital. And so 
nuclear waste for about 10 years after it's been used up. The spent fuel will continue to exceed 10,000 rem an hour. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, very dangerous, to put it mildly. I was not expecting that high of a number. And so, and then from that point, it slowly declines until it's eventually down to a safe number. But uh, that takes a long time. A general time scale for long-term storage of nuclear materials is 10,000 years. So not, not close to a human lifetime. No, <laughs> definitely not. And so today we are going to learn about some of the facilities that we have proposed or have built to house this long-term waste storage and the solutions we've come up to the problems that building stuff on that sort of time scale arises. We'll begin with one of like the first attempts at containing the waste. And we're going to travel all the way over to the middle of the Pacific Ocean and visit the Marshall Islands. Marshall Islands are about 8,000 miles away from Los Angeles. And after World War II, the United States liberated them from Japan and then occupied them for a period of time. And given its remote location, it was selected as the site to conduct nuclear weapons testing in isolation. Particularly one of the most famous islands there is Bikini Atoll, which in February of 1946, the U.S. military governor of the Marshall Islands asked the 167 Marshallese inhabitants of Bikini uh, to voluntarily and temporarily relocate themselves from this island. And they did it in a propaganda video that was filmed, and the they were asked to leave the island so that they could use it for testing, quote, for the good of mankind and to end all wars. Oh, yes. And you see how that worked out. And so, over the next 12 years, 67 nuclear weapons were tested in the Marshall Islands. Bikini Atoll was subjected to 23 of them, including Castle Bravo, which was the most powerful weapon tested by the United States. So this temporary relocation was at least 12 years. Well, that's the thing. They moved them to other islands of the Marshall Islands. Some of those islands will never be inhabited by humans ever again. Hmm. Including Bikini Atoll. Nice. But because you just test so many weapons and radiation goes with the wind and water currents. There are plenty of examples of the radiation spreading amongst the Marshallese people causing irreparable harm. Um, there's elevated rates of thyroid cancer, particularly after Castle Bravo. There was an event called nuclear snow in which radioactive dust fell from the sky and if it landed on people, then they would experience severe radiation poisoning and their skin would burn. 
Oh, nice. And uh, after Castle Bravo, the United States just left the people to exist in the snow for like three days. Hey. So, yeah. And there continue to be problems with, like I said, cancer and um, one of the most horrific ones. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail. I'll just let your mind eye deal with it for you. But uh, because of these testing on the Marshall Islands, the term jellyfish baby is now a thing. Uh, yeah. So, moving forward. Um, those who were displaced were subject to lack of resources, uh, malnutrition, radiation, that spread from the test site. In 1980, Runit Island in the Eniwetok Atoll, which was one of the islands that had been tested upon, was selected as the site for cleanup. Um, in the 70s, the Marshall Islands were beginning to no longer be under direct United States control, basically. Oh, so they had to clean up their mess. And so they had to <laughs> clean up their mess as part of the agreement for independence and stuff. Mm. And so, on Runet Island... Uh, one of the craters that was left from a bomb detonation was selected. It was selected to be the site where the U.S. military would contain all of the debris from that they could scoop off the ground, basically. Over the last, what, like Over 20, the last, yeah. 20-something years, so I'm sure half, most of that stuff <clears throat> was just lost. And so 73,000 cubic meters of radioactive waste was mixed with concrete and dumped into the 377-foot diameter crater. And then this crater, concrete sludge, was covered in an 18-inch concrete dome. Okay. So it's kind of a... I mean, Chernobyl, they have the dome and everything, so... Similar, yes. Okay. Concrete does a good job if it's thick enough at containing radiation and all that stuff. Uh, the island is officially off-limits to everybody, but there is nothing stopping anyone from going to the island if they so choose, and in fact, people still live on the Enawatak Atoll, mm. because atolls, for those who don't know, are basically these gigantic rings of coral reefs and islands, and inside of it is this gigantic lagoon that they can vary in size. And so on one corner of the atoll is Runa Island, and like on the other side of the atoll, people still live there. Um, and so, yeah, you can take a boat out there. There's nothing stopping you. Some level of tourism exists. Of course. But, yeah, you know. The concrete dome. Irradiated. Uh, well, because this dome was built in the 1980s, uh, it is now currently eroding and leaking radioactive materials into Lagoon. Oh, of course. Yes, beautiful. Um, partially, this is accelerated by climate change and ocean sea level rise mm. because it is just a dome sitting on top of the sand and coral and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. And so if the sea level rises far enough, then it could just lift the entire dome off. But the U.S. government 
has said that it's not too much of a concern because the leaking materials will not dramatically increase the radiation that is already in the environment. Ah, so it's already, there's already radiation, don't worry about it, a little bit extra won't hurt you. And the U.S. government also believes that they have done their due diligence, and by constructing the dome, they have, quote, fulfilled their moral obligation to the islands. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah. International courts have ordered over $2 billion to be awarded in reparation to the Marshallese people from the United States, Mm -hmm. but only somewhere around $4 million has actually been paid out. Yeah, so the future of this area is very much concern, and some of these islands will not be inhabitable for 20 to 30,000 years. Um, Bikini Atoll, though it is currently uninhabitable, there are four people who live on the island as observers, sort of researchers, monitoring radiation level and stuff. Oh, okay. But that is it. Hey, and is Bikini Atoll, is that, <clears throat> does that have anything to do with like the SpongeBob Bikini Bottom? I feel like I've heard that. So, the word bikini, it entered the popular imagining because of these tests. The bikini, the bikini swimsuit was introduced around the time of these nuclear bomb testing, and it received that name because it was supposed to be this explosive, pun intended, fashion choice. That feels like it's kind of in bad taste. And <laughs> yes, Bikini Bottom probably does have, they probably were inspired by the island also. There is some theories that SpongeBob is supposed to be set at Bikini Atoll, hence why they're able to talk and stuff. But I think the writers and stuff have kind of downplayed that idea. Yeah, as you probably should. So that kind of shows you the example of uh, what we've done in the past and probably how not to do it in the future. Uh, building it on an island that it will be sunk in, you know, 100 years or so. Yeah. So people realize that they need to locate this waste in regions that do not change very much environmentally over long periods of time. Ideally, bury it deep underground. So that way no one can get to it. It's just... It's yeah. buried. It's Nothing's going to touch it. And yeah, and you just leave it there. So for our 76 nuclear reactors across the country, there is currently spent fuel at all of them. Um, because we don't have a long-term storage facility. That's good. Uh... For a period of time, the spent waste is stored in cooling pools, and then they're moved to these giant concrete casks called dry casks, and they stay on the power plant's facilities. This is not a long-term solution, but it's what we got right now. And so, in 1987, the U.S. government did some research and surveying, and they selected a site 
80 miles northwest of Las Vegas, Nevada, to become the first deep geological repository for high-level radioactive waste. It was selected due to its isolation, and it was next to a former nuclear test site. So there's already that sort of history there. Um, In 2002, after decades of study to determine if the ground was suitable and whether or not you could actually store materials down there long term, President Bush gave the okay for the project to move into the next phases. And in 2006, it was estimated that if the project was fully funded, it would open the facility and begin to intake nuclear waste in 2017. But in 2007, Nevada Senator Harry Reid became the Senate Majority Leader, and he was not a big fan of the project. And so he basically announced the project dead. Funding was subsequently reduced. And in 2011, all federal funding was halted. And so as of right now, this project is kind of in a state of limbo. Huh. So what is he... So the main opposition to it is... It's a familiar problem to people dealing with policy issues. Um... It's called Not In My Backyard, or NIMBY. Oh, I've heard of this, yeah. Uh, We need to put nuclear waste somewhere, but nobody really likes the idea of nuclear waste being stored close to them. And so Harry Reid did not like the idea that his state was chosen and did not like its location in Las Vegas, near Las Vegas. He believed that it would be incredibly dangerous to transport nuclear waste across the country he thought it would come through las vegas and then if an accident happens oh no right yeah i guess sure there is also some indigenous native american opposition because uh yucca mountain does have some religious spiritual significance to the local native americans so Okay. Okay. That's also a factor. But, uh, yeah, as of right now, the U.S. does not have a long-term storage option for its power plant waste. But we do have a long-term storage solution for our nuclear weapons waste. Opened in 1999, 26 miles from Carlsbad, New Mexico... The Waste Isolation Pilot Program was launched, and it is used by the United States military for the storage of nuclear weapons waste. It is one of three long-term storage facilities currently in operation in the world. The other two are over in Germany. Um, So this is the only one in the United States. And the facility has... It consists of a bunch of storage rooms over 2,000 feet deep in an old salt mine. See, that's what I was going to say. Is like, why don't they have like a, a defunct mine or something like that? Because that's obviously easy, pretty easy access. Yeah, so storage. Um, the plan for this facility, I'll, I'll get to that. So the plan for this facility 
is that it will continue to accept nuclear waste um, until about 2035, at which point the waste will be sealed in these rooms and in the mine, and the mine will be collapsed and sealed behind 13 layers of soil and concrete. And the reason why the salt mine was ideal is because salt works weird whenever you get to that sort of pressure in the ground. And so salt will actually creep into any and all the cracks that are left behind from filling up hmm. the mine shafts. Oh, that's kind of cool. And so it will further enact as a sort of sealant. Hmm. And the salt will prevent moisture buildup and all that sort of stuff. Um, so after 75 years of the mine being filled in and kind of uh, the site will be isolated from the environment, meaning set off away from the public. Okay. And this is specifically for... This is specifically for nuclear weapons. Okay. And so the max number that they used to say could feasibly hold is 175,500 cubic meters of waste. So, yeah, this is currently the only long-term storage facility in the U.S., and he said it's near Roswell, and so that would be pretty it's close It's near to Carlsbad. Carlsbad, oh, I'm sorry. So um, it's kind of down in the Permian Basin, and um, yeah, far out in the middle of the desert, basically. Still kind of close to, like, Pantex, the nuclear disassembly yeah. site. Yeah. Um, so that's the only one that we have in the United States. But... Finland might be ahead of the game on this one uh, as far as power waste goes. They have selected an island off of the coast of their country <coughs> uh, called the Onkalo Nuclear Waste Repository. And it is built in granite bedrock. Construction began in 2004 and it is expected to be in operation in 2023 and it is supposed to be large enough to accept fuel waste for 100 years after which it will be sealed off so it is currently the only deep geological power repository for power plant waste these facilities take a while to build because it's 2004 are, to 23 you are digging deep 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 in the ground and you gotta keep everything safe <laughs> yeah that makes sense um so yeah it's out in the middle of nowhere finland doesn't have a lot of people this island is not going anywhere so that's kind of some of the examples of the facilities that we have constructed or plan to construct. Um, but once you have a facility and once you have filled it with nuclear waste, you then come up with the problem of how do you keep people away from it 10,000 years from now? And so 
This was the exact same question that people had in mind back in 1981, whenever the Human Interference Task Force was convened to help develop solutions to this problem of deterring humans from interacting with these sites long term. Main problem that people have come up with is that written language is only around 5,500 years old. And I don't think anybody can read Sumerian cuneiform. Probably not. So it's... Not, I mean, you could only understand English going back about 500, 600 years before it just sounds like gibberish. Yeah. And so language is uh, very tricky. And so since you can't just put a sign there necessarily that says, keep away, don't touch, people have come up with some very interesting solutions to these problems. Oh, God. Are we um, going back to, like, hieroglyphics or something? <laughs> well, so, um, I mean, you could theoretically resurrect the language after the fact. Uh, Hebrew is really the only example that we have of this. Um, I mean, it was successfully resurrected as a spoken language in Israel after around 1,600 years but it was still sort of spoken as a religious language during that time, so it never fully went away. Mm. Um, and, you know, some memories, oral histories in particular, have shown to have some long-lasting staying power. Indigenous oral history uh, about the creation of Crater Lake in Washington State. Okay. It wasn't until the 1920s that geologists and volcanologists realized that the crater was the result of a collapsed volcano. Yeah, they just didn't know how that sort of stuff worked until then, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the place, so the mountain that Crater Lake is on is called Mount Mazama. And... American white British people, um, they have known about the mountain since the 1860s. And whenever they discovered the mountain, you know, indigenous people had these stories of their gods and massive explosions and them being buried and stuff there that, under modern knowledge, sounds a lot like a volcano going off. And um, the eruption and collapse of the volcano was around 7,700 years ago, give or take, or a few centuries. Jeez. And so their oral history has managed to retain some aspects of that for about 7,000 years. That's pretty crazy. And Australian Aboriginal oral histories... Um, could be as old as about 10,000 years because in some parts of the continent uh, they have folklore that discusses ancestors walking to places that are now islands and the water coming around and keeping them from going back and so they are able to have some aspect of 
like end of the ice age climate change. Huh. One thing I have to, I wonder about that is more of, I guess stories kind of conform to like what people know. Mm -hmm. And so at the same time, you know, the Aboriginal people could remember or talk about like, you know, them walking to these now islands but at the same time, if they didn't really have too many concepts of sailing or anything, they could just say, you know, it, 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 it's not necessarily that it actually, like, they remember that happening. Yeah. The, the oral history is that, but it's just kind of what they know. Yeah. So yeah. In, that, in that way, it's kind of hard to tell if that's the story kept for that long. Or Yeah, and it's also, like, it's not as clear-cut as, oh, yeah, this volcano exploded or oh yeah, the sea levels rose. It's more of locked up in this religious aspect. Yeah, so what kind of connotations are like a nuclear bomb going off in 10,000 years going to sound like? So that's kind of a thing keeping on this religious theme. One of the solutions that the Human Interference Task Force came up with, uh, particularly two guys named Thomas C. probably pronouncing it wrong, Thomas Sebiak and Alvin Weinberg. And their idea is known as the Atomic Priesthood. Basically, we invent a religion about fearing atomic radiation and fearing those sites and they are the information about these sites is kept in these faux religious institutions that will be able to sort of keep people away while still being relevant to the culture uh the main i the reasons behind this idea is like the catholic church is almost 2,000 years old, and they have, you know, the Vatican Library, which has stuff going back hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, Hinduism and Judaism are both around 4,000 years old, so religious institutions are really the only example that we have of these long-lasting things. I think... It's also really interesting to have to compare what 10,000 years in the future is going to look like versus 10,000 years back. Because exactly. So we've only had the technology of even like powered flight for 100 years. And then within that time span, we went to other planets with things. And so it's just like the advancement of technology is kind of hard to say, well, you know, this has lasted for 2,000 years, but will it, you know, what mediums do we have now that will last even longer, do you think? Yeah, and I mean, that's the main question is we have no earthly idea, you know, what the next hundred years holds, let alone 10,000. 10, um, but yeah, so the atomic priesthood is just one idea that they came up with. Um, another one of the more humorous ideas is uh, glowing cats. Glowing cats. So basically it is we will use genetic engineering to where we can make cats.
cats like glow in the dark whenever they are exposed to radiation and we will create sort of these cultural memories to have people be scared and superstitious of glowing cats to where they know that if their cats start to glow they need to get away this feels like a really weird like canary in a mine shaft kind of thing yeah it's just glowing cats <laughs> and i mean in 1974 uh we genetically modified a mouse so animal gmos are a thing um and we can make animals do weird stuff with genetics i mean we got goats that produce spider milk well i mean spider silk whenever you milk them uh, you can get chickens to produce drugs in their eggs to treat rare medical disorders. And, I mean, one of the most popular ones that are out there are glowfish, which are a type of zebrafish that glow different colors under UV light. And they're and actually copyrighted. The organisms are copyrighted. Um... Huh. And I mean, in 2009, a Korean university, they made fluorescent beagles that glow red because they wanted to study narcolepsy and blindness. So I guess red beagles help with that somehow. <laughs> I guess the beagles couldn't sleep because they were glowing red. So <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Blindness, sleep disorders, I don't know. But um, I mean, like uh, black cat superstitions, you know? Mm. They go back around 400 years, you know, with witchcraft connotations. And, I mean, some of the earliest superstitions that people have probably go back to, like, ladders. You know, it's bad luck to walk under a ladder, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That can sort of be traced back to around 5,000 years. And it's, like, has death and sort of religious connotations or you just don't want to walk under a ladder because something could fall on you you know okay. but uh <clears throat> a funny thing that uh someone came up with to help with the culture of glowing cats um is a guy named emperor x uh he wrote a song called the 10,000-year earworm to discourage resettlement near nuclear waste repositories, also known as Don't Change Color Kitty. And it is supposed to be designed to be so catchy that it will just last forever. Ah, that's cute. And so uh, I played a bit of it at the intro to the episode. Very interesting. <laughs> a nice commentary on the whole idea. Yeah, yeah. Is it catchy enough for you? I'd say so. Mm -hmm. It just also, yeah, yeah. Makes me a little confused when I first heard it, you know, without the context. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a... I I heard this song while looking into the episode, and uh, before I got to the thing about glowing cats, I just found the song. And I was like, what is this thing? And so that got me looking into the task force and all that stuff. I mean, but, I guess it'd make more sense if we actually had bioluminescent cats. Yeah. Um, and 
Yeah, so, you know, it's that's more of an option now that we're messing around with genetics and stuff, but uh, that's still a long ways down. It's the most humorous option that we have. Mm -hmm. Probably not the best, but, you know, who knows? Um, so, another option that the task force decided was basically to create these large earthworks that are physically disturbing, uh, like large spikes that come out of the ground at these weird angles or impossible cubes or, <laughs> you know, these giant stuff that is there that looks weird. And so people know that something is important there, and then hopefully they'll be able to detect the radiation or whatever. I think that's going to immediately make people want to go and check it out. So that's Yeah, that's the big <laughs> thing is like urban explorers, you know, how do you make it imposing so people know that it's there but don't want to go. Mm. And like we got some examples of that, of, you know, architecture lasting for long periods of time. Stonehenge is around 5,000 years old. The pyramid's 4,000 years old. The longest lasting earthwork that we have is the Watson Brake mound works that are in Louisiana, built by the Mississippian culture. And they're about five and a half thousand years old. So, but yeah, urban explorers, kids are gonna go and grow thirds arms and stuff and I'll show you some photos of it real quick. I will say those spikes are pretty foreboding but I don't know if they're gonna I don't know if you can keep those around for 10,000 years I mean you get like a earth trimmer or something and those things are gone. Yeah um they entered kind of the popular imagination because I'm pretty sure that they were used in a fallout game at some point mm. But that would make it, um, that'd be interesting, yeah. you know. But yeah, spike fields or forbidding blocks. Yes, but yeah, it's uh. Yeah, I think keeping a permanent structure is probably one of the hardest things to do, just because the Earth does not like it loves change. <laughs> mm. And so, uh, but yeah, since we need people to not go there, the final option that they've come up with and uh we'll see what you have to say about it maybe uh you just don't say anything and this is kind of an option that's being considered at the finland repository is it's on an island out in the middle of nowhere people will have no reason to go there and it's buried so deep that once you have it sealed up you just let it be you remove all buildings and... Just kind of act like it doesn't exist? Yeah. I mean, honestly, as bad as that kind of sounds, it might be one of the best options, too. Because, yeah. like, if somebody stumbles into that... Yeah. How? Number one. And number two, you know, the prior radiation poisoning, they'll probably feel bad. And they'll be like, mm -hmm. oh, not going there again. Just don't draw any sort of attention to it and hope that if people in the future do find it that they'll know they will because it takes like 
digging 2,000 feet in the ground and unsealing any of these mines or whatever, that takes some technologically advanced stuff right there. Yeah, and even, like, yeah, exactly. Like, and knowing so, that it's there, or if you don't know it's there, then how do you just chance upon that? Like, really? Yeah. And if it's out in the middle of the desert, you know, you just let it be and hope 10,000 years go by uneventfully. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, that's all of the sort of options that we kind of got and the questions that people a long time from now will have to deal with. That's, yeah, that's the thing is I don't think with any kind of conditioning or anything, people are made to understand that kind of time scale anyway. No. Like, obviously, we hear about the the sun is going to expand and consume Earth in the next, like, half billion years or whatever, but that means nothing to anybody. Yeah. People barely can look five years in the future, let alone, you know, mm -hmm. thousands of generations. Like, it's... I don't think there's any kind of solution that we can come up with now that'll intentionally last that long. Yeah. Um, but we do need to find a spot to put all this waste. Cause oh, for sure. For sure. We, it's, you know, it's, it has to go somewhere, you know. Yeah, and I think, I also remember you talking a while back about what most of the, like, power plant waste actually is. Mm -hmm. Would you mind telling the listeners about what it typically actually is? Yeah, I mean, it's the fuel rods for the most part. Um, with, it's plutonium, uranium, the very bad stuff. As far as mass goes for total nuclear waste, it doesn't take up a whole lot of space because, you know, nuclear waste is bad and it's so bad that it is the only power source that we keep track of where all the waste is and contain it. While like a coal factory, it just spews the smoke into the sky. There's no sort of capture there. As far as mass goes, a lot of it is medical materials, um, short-term nuclear waste that will only be dangerous for 10, 20 years or whatever. So I think that's also important to remember is that the really bad stuff... The really, really bad stuff... There's really not that much of. Yeah, I, I think in the 50 years of nuclear waste generation in the United States... You could fit all of it in a single three-story building the size of a soccer field. So. Relatively. Relatively, we can solve it. But it's just that sitting in these concrete containers just out in the open is not necessarily the best place to do it. Um, I mean, that's why uh, the Fukushima place was so bad is because they just had the dry storage and the wet storage there and because of the tsunami a lot of that got washed away contaminated that sort of stuff yeah. so well that about wraps up the episode uh thanks for listening if you want to find out any more about the nuclear waste storage issue i'll put some links down in the show notes our music today was brought to you by Emperor X and Mountaineer. You can find Mountaineer's music and others on Upbeat.io. That's Upbeat with two Ps. Um, 
If you have any questions about nuclear waste, suggestions for future episodes, or you just want to say hi, you can reach us at History Spelunkers. That's history, S-P-E-L-U-N-K-E-R-S, at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and until the next trip down the rabbit hole, peace. Yeah.